Hey, and welcome to the latest episode, number 14 of the Dan Time Podcast. I'm your host, Dan McArdle. It's great to have you back. How's the time change treating you? You know, one thing I like, nobody ever mentions this, I don't think, but that strobe effect of the early morning sun flickering at you through the trees as you drive to work, that's gone. That's gone for most of us for a little while. Then when you're heading home, there's no squinting, no trying to watch that light change from red to green while you look straight into the low-setting sun. I sincerely hope you enjoyed last week's episode with our first female guest on Dan Time, Miss Jeannie Cook from the Danville Dans Prospect League baseball team in Danville, Illinois. What a wonderful perspective we received from someone who is in part responsible for saving a baseball stadium many decades ago and helping to create lasting memories for fans of all ages. I truly hope you're enjoying the variety on Dan Time. If there's a guest for the show who you know about, who you think the rest of the world needs to hear about, maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Drop me a line at dantimepod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Or maybe you just got a garbage time question that you'd like me to toss out there at the end of an episode. Folks, today we're getting right back to the comedy well. We heard from West Coast-based comic Daniel Eaches a couple weeks ago. Hey, be sure to follow him. Follow Dan Eaches on all the socials for his upcoming dates. Today, Dan Altano is my guest. This was such a blast to connect with Dan, and I can't wait to wrap up these remarks so that you can see what I'm talking about. Like Dan, I'm also a middle brother of three boys. We bonded on that front, and he really opened up about what it's like to build your brand and handle all the obstacles that come your way as a comedian, as a husband, as a father. Dan recorded his new album, Stand Up Dad, at the brand new New York Comedy Club in Stamford, Connecticut. Stand Up Dad debuted at number one on the iTunes comedy charts. I highly recommend you download this album wherever you download music or comedy. You're going to love it. Dan Altano was born in New Jersey, longtime resident of New York City, and is now based out of New Haven, Connecticut. He headlines clubs and theaters across the country. Listen to this episode for a little teaser on some upcoming tour dates. And follow him at danaltano.com as more dates are released for December and into the next year. Dan was recently named one of New York City's Breakout Artists of the Year by Carolines on Broadway. He appeared in the New York Comedy Festival for three straight years. He also co-produced Just a Jersey Guy and His Son, a comedic storytelling show with his father, Brian Altano. Okay, there's so much to sink into on this conversation, so let's get right to it. Folks, it is Dan Altano time. Great to be speaking to you today, Dan. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. This is, a, this is a thrill. I'm really excited. Awesome. Well, I have been checking out your new stand-up album or your new comedy album, Stand Up Dad. I think that men of all ages, women of all ages too, but particularly dads around our age will be uh, basically, if you're anything like me, be grinning, have a fixed grin throughout the entire album. Um, <laughs> you hit on some of the challenges that we face, uh, some of the ridiculous things that we have to go through. Oh my gosh, Dan, the terrible twos track. I, I, I had to play it. Uh, I had to play it again and again. It is spot on. Oh man. Thanks. How are your audiences reacting to this material when you're out there on your headlining tour? It's been really fun. It's been really exciting to see uh, how it plays out. You know, until this album, this is my debut album, right? So on, until this moment, everything's always been live. And so you get those those immediate reactions. What's been really fun is when I get a message from someone or you saying that it resonated uh, where you were. So it's it's cool uh, as a dad to not have to go out and do stand up now for some people to hear me do stand up. You know, like I'm still doing shows constantly, but it's also nice to to have the work being done for me out there, like while you're listening to it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a there's a lot of comedy out there kind of bashing being a parent or bashing your own kids. And I've always thought of it as like, you know, if you wanted kids, why are you ripping on it? Like this would be something that you that you like. And so for like the terrible twos, it is a funny thing because it'd be parents 
complaining to me after a show. She's like, oh, they're the worst. I'm like, they're 24 months old. How could they already be awful? You know? <laughs> so it's the idea of like, can you take a little bit of ownership of like, maybe, maybe we're terrible and then we made more of us, right? So it's like, there's never any ownership of like, <laughs> hey, maybe we made annoying people. It's always like, oh, they just showed up like aliens and started crying, you know? You know, all these behavior characteristics. Uh, we were there at one point. Yeah, I, I was on a plane once and I had my, my two-year-old with me. And I remember a woman was annoyed that he was kicking the seat. She was like, could you please, could you please tell him to act a little bit older and i was like he's two like do you want him to like do you want him to be reading poetry right now like, you, want, you know what i mean like should we do a crossword puzzle he's two years old like he's right. acting exactly how a two-year-old acts I'm like yeah like i'll tell him to stop kicking the seat but he's not going to suddenly put on eyeglasses you know what i mean and just start like oh sorry let me get back to my kindle i i apologize for how i behaved here today one of the funniest things i experienced because i have a two and a half year old when he was 18 months, we got him into a preschool. And I remember the first note that he got sent home. And it, and I think it started out saying, please have a conversation with Wyatt about not sticking toys up his pants or like have a talk. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what do they think? You're, you're both going to be like sipping your coffee on the porch and be like, hey, buddy, I think we should discuss this thing. Like I had a, a daycare. We need to talk daycare. about boundaries. <laughs> Yeah. And they're like, what? I don't, I don't even know how to put pants on. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to do anything, but yeah, let me do, let me think about boundaries at this point in my life. Like, no, no, but I had a, I had a teacher once. I, he was like a year and a half and I walked in, it was like a daycare person. And she was like, he hit a kid. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, that's terrible. She's like, yeah, he hit a kid. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'm like thinking like that day, like, do I have like a, like a serial killer? on my hands and whatever went went back in the next day and i asked the other teacher i'm like what happened she was like oh some kid took his toy and he like tapped him on the shoulder and i was like that's way different <laughs> than hitting a kid like she acted like he battered a kid around you know what i mean like he just came home from a hard day at work and just started hitting a kid I'm like no that's he's being a little kid we we do that we do have that like you said that that short-term memory we, we forget that we were ever kids we just expect them to act like 40 year olds you know out of the gate yeah, it is. I will admit it is frustrating at times. I'm sure you can relate when you're trying to maybe write or get you, you got a great idea. You want to get it down. And I talked about this on the last episode, I think, or a couple episodes back. And you got to stop what you're doing either to just change a diaper or for two hours because your wife's got to run out. And now you've just got to be a dad and you got you got to do it. But it it's not like it's, it's always tough. easy. You know, I don't know how you experienced the, the pandemic, but I was in New York City, so we were in a, a one bedroom closed off from everything. And I heard all my friends being like, work has been crazy. Work has been insane. The ones without kids. And I'm like, really? It, it was insane? Because I was doing a Zoom comedy show, which those are fun. And I'm in the middle of, I'm headlining and I'm in the middle of like my big closer. And my son just walked in and just closed my laptop. Oh, man. <laughs> just closed it and i'm like i don't want to hear that work has been insane when at any point my son could just literally just end what i'm doing like no one <laughs> without a kid had to deal with that kind of that kind of threat and those those zoom shows were were crazy by the way like because you'd get hired in the pandemic by like a an office that wanted to like you know keep the camaraderie going so they'd hire a comedian but they always start with like a report about how the company's doing. And I have this one company that they started off, they're like, listen, we've had a good year, but there will be layoffs and we're not going to be able to keep everyone and our sales are down and the death toll has risen and uh, things are really rough out there. And now for comedy, please welcome Dan Altano. And I'm like, what? I just followed layoffs? And so everyone's just, I'm seeing their faces. They just literally like their whole world shattered. And I have to come in and be like, hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. How do you walk into that? Crazy. It's yeah. You just, you just have to be like, well, that was the grim reaper. And now it's, uh, now it's time for some, some jokes. It's going to be really fun. This album, Dan, and it, when it debuted on iTunes, it was at the top of the iTunes charts. How much fun did you have putting this together? The, uh, 
the artwork had me rolling. Or you got oh, thanks. the you got the mic. You're trying to uh, hold the mic, but it's the milk bottle. <laughs> there's there's this uh, amazing artist. Uh, her name is Liddy Corbin, and she what she would do is she would sit in the back of comedy clubs and she would draw in real time, like fast, like what was being talked about, and then she'd go up at the end of a comedy show and she would show the audience like here's a recap of everything you saw, and it was it was mind blowing. So I knew when I wanted to do my album cover, I wanted to use her. And uh, she did such a great job. And the concept I basically was like, I'm holding my baby on stage. I'm feeding my baby the microphone by accident and talking into a bottle. And that's all I gave her. And then she just made this amazing graphic. And I was so excited about it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the process of putting together the album was thrilling and scary and so much fun. A record label reached out to me to sign me, which was like such a, a beautiful moment. And it's funny because everyone thinks comedians are like these hardened people and stuff. And I'm on a call with this record label and they're like, yeah, we want to sign you and, and, and make a, an album. And I was like, I actually said, I was like, I'm getting teary. I'm like, I'm so excited. And they all kind of looked at me like, all right, tone it down. Like, relax. <laughs> too much, too much emotion. And then we picked a venue, which was New York Comedy Club in Stanford, Connecticut. They just opened a new club. I thought when I signed the contract, I figured, all right, there's probably like 80 people that it fits. So I could do two shows and I could probably sell 160. Like, no problem. I could try to make that work. Uh, when you do an album, you do two shows in one night. So you do five o'clock and seven o'clock or seven o'clock and nine o'clock. And then you take the best moments of both and you put it together. So I signed the contract and I said, yes, Stanford, that's a great place. By the way, how many tickets does it, does it hold? Like how many seats does it hold? And they said 250. And I was like, oh my God. Because now you've gone from trying to sell maybe 160 tickets to 500 tickets. Um, and so that was, I was terrified that no one would show up. You know, you have those like nightmares, right? Where you just like show up to do your album and it's just, it's just like tumbleweeds and like, you know, some wait waiters or something. And I just got so lucky that it just was packed out. So just, just because they were people there, I instantly was like, I'm, I'm happy no matter what happens. And then the second show, it was going so well that I forgot that I was recording an album. And I would say that's the best sign. Because the first show I was like in my head, I'm like, okay, this joke, then that joke, then I say that and say this right and say that right. By the second show, I was just like having fun. And it was like a blackout moment. I just blacked out, got off stage. And I was just like, I think, I think that was it. I think that went well. And I'm really proud of it. It's, I don't know how you feel like editing a podcast, but I hate hearing my own voice. And when you go through editing a, a uh, an album you have to hear yourself over and over again so i think that was the hardest part in the editing was like why do i say that or why do i sound like that um but once it once it was done i'm I'm super proud of it i've been really uh, excited by the response and it's just been it's been thrilling like i said to hear someone across the country i'm in the new york area to hear someone you know across the country say this resonated or i love this this joke that's a real true compliment and it feels good. Well, it is just, I mean, you go right out the gate, pedal to the metal. And for me, uh, just speaking for myself, you had me from beginning to end. I love oh, when you man. go back to the middle school days. That's something that I talked about a couple podcasts, a couple episodes yeah. ago. And the locker and everything. And just the, the Dan Altano persona at, say, 13 years old. I won't give oh, it away, God. but just like that grown man, but look but the but the boy uh yeah. that was i think yeah, was you did a, a great thing. job girl said to me I, I i asked a girl for a dance and she said um <laughs> i know who you are you're that short guy with a mature face <laughs> and so the line i say in the album which is exactly what i was thinking was like i couldn't quite tell what she meant but i had a feeling she meant no i will not <laughs> dance with you and I remember being in seventh grade and a girl saying that to me, you're, you're the short guy with a mature face. And it like, I didn't know that I was going to be a comedian one day. And one of the best parts about being a comic is like, you can take those moments that at the time were painful or really embarrassing and you can turn it into something and get a laugh out of it. So it makes that memory nice now. Whereas before yep. it might've been like, oh, that was brutal. But the, the fact that I could turn it into a laugh and I can turn it into a story that people resonate with. It's such a joy. It's such an exciting thing. 
And so like that actually, that joke motivated me in a lot of ways to look at other moments in my life or painful things or, or stressful things and turn them into jokes. Cause it almost was like, no, let me take my history or the things that I'm embarrassed by or stressed out by, and let me turn that into something that's relatable that we can laugh about. And suddenly those, those memories kind of drift away or they, they don't feel as big. I think the way you delivered it may be helpful for other people listening who thought, yeah, I was kind of a, an odd character at 12, yeah. 13 years old. Yeah. I had a weird shaped head or big feet or, uh, you know, I had everything. I was such a, I mean, looking back in the moment, it's not fun. And you're like, what is this? Oh. Why, why do I look so bizarre? Uh, and you don't yeah. realize you're going to fill out, stretch out a little bit. But when you get older, you, you can have some fun with those old periods. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think, and I say it in, in the album where like, I was the shortest kid in my entire school, but I mean, maybe it's cause I'm Italian, but I was the first one who could grow a mustache. And I'm like, <laughs> what is that? Like, what can I do with that? Like, what can I do as a short kid with a mustache? And I like kept the mustache thinking like, this will make me seem cool. But I just look like Super Mario. Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, now you must have, you must have had enough charm even back then to take some attention off just only the appearance and yes. have some, some of your friends laughing and kind of that charm was, your way out was, of some things. That was always what it was. I definitely charm my way out of everything, out of every fight. Anytime that there was any kind of friction, I was the, I was the comic relief. I definitely wasn't like a class clown. Like I wasn't jumping in front of the room, jumping around and stuff, but I was that person that would diffuse the tension. Uh, I'm a middle child. I got an older brother and a younger brother. I've got, you know, have to kind of be the, the funny guy. So I was always the kind of wise ass, make the little wise ass comment, but then not get punched in the face somehow. Like slip slip out of this situation. The guy's like, um, uh, I don't really want to hurt this dude anymore. He's actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, or just like just like to be honest in that moment and not be the tough guy because I knew I wasn't. Like I remember once there was this huge guy, like jacked guy, and he started an argument with my girlfriend at the time in high school, and he's like, "We're gonna fight." It's like we're gonna fight, and this is like you know you know when the kids like circle around you, right? And I was like. I'm not going to fight you. And he's like, why? I'm like, because you're going to win. <laughs> I'm like, why would I, I, you already won. And now I already feel bad because I'm saying, no, I'm not going to fight you, but I don't have a black guy. I'm like, let's just, let's just pretend you beat me up. I'm like, do you need me to like lay down and cry? Like, we'll, we'll, we'll try that. And he just starts laughing and he's like, ah, all right. And then we like, we're hanging out. And it was the idea of like, there is that, that feeling in high school, middle school, like, no, you got to fight this guy. And it's like, no, I'm five foot flat and he's six foot two and he gave my other friend a black eye. Like, what are we doing here? You know? So yeah, there was always that, like, I'm going to diffuse the moment and just kind of like, I'm going to make the bully laugh and then we're okay. You know, you mentioned being the middle child. I was yeah. also, I am the middle of two, uh, I'm sorry, of three boys with, oh, wow. with yes, the dad. Indeed. So it was like, yeah. you know, and my dad still, a huge part of my life. He he was gone a good bit, but when he was around, he made he made a, a point to make those moments count. And he was yeah. He always kept me and my brothers together. He would do he'd make pancakes for us to come over when we were, you know, already grown and doing stuff. And uh yeah, so I when I read about you and your relationship with your father, and I wanted yeah. to touch on that too, the just a Jersey guy and son show. Yeah. How did that come about and yeah, I guess I also want to ask about just your relationship with your brothers and your dad. Yeah, my, my dad is uh, an amazing person. He's a he's a storyteller, and so he's also a professor. But growing up, he would do these like one man shows, where he would just go on stage and tell stories about growing up in Jersey City and all these these characters. And what we're different is that I uh, I write my stuff out. Like I really I look line by line and that kind of thing. And my dad just riffs it, freestyles it. But I watched him growing up like killing. I watched him going on stage in theaters and just annihilating the room. And so to me and in my house, the currency was never money. We never cared about money. We didn't have it, but we also didn't care about it. There wasn't any prestige around money. Uh, it was who has the best story today or like who had the funniest moment at school or what's something you're creating. My mom was very artistic 
and you know a painter and and everything in our house was just creativity so my dad was uh he's not like the the person that's going to give you the the hug or the great job but he always kind of just pushed me in the right direction like i was in a band for many years the band fell apart and i was kind of lost and for my birthday for christmas one year he got me a comedy class at the comic strip in new york city and he knew deep down I was obsessed with stand-up. I always wanted to do it, but I didn't have the, the courage to do it. And he's like, all right, I signed you up for this class. It's like 10 blocks from where you live. And I was like, I don't want to do it, Dad. Like, I'm not ready. He goes, well, it starts in five days, write a joke. And I started and I just became addicted. And it also made me feel connected with him. And we had something to talk about, I think, in a deeper way, because now we're both performers. And so we had this bond that started kind of in my 30s, where we could talk about, hey, when you do a joke like this, what reaction do you get? Or what do you do when you don't have a line for this? We can we have this other language. And I think maybe you can relate to this, but as a middle child, you're always kind of vying for attention, right? Because the right. only one gets the attention. My older brother always got all the attention because he was very rebellious, very talented. My younger brother, they're the baby. So they're like, oh, isn't everything they do cute? And the middle one, they're like, what's his name? Dan? Is it Dan? Dan. Uh, I, I That's exactly how it was. Uh, yeah, right? My brother's and, and a musician. My older brother. Oh, talented, right? Super right. talented. Yeah. Right. It's how we end up in comedy or in, in doing a podcast. You know, it's like <laughs> someone's got to listen to me, right? But yeah, I had a joke that I actually didn't put it in the album. But essentially, my brother Brian always got all the attention. And I always looked up to him. And when I first started doing stand-up, I was like, getting a little bit confident for once. And I Googled my own name and I put it Dan Altano and I'm not making this up. Google said, did you mean Brian Altano? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh God, Google's playing favorites too. Like, what the hell? Oh my God. But uh, I think growing up, it was a very funny household. It was, uh, everything was jokes. Everything was storytelling. Everything was like, again, like the the excitement in our house is like, something cool that you're working on and doing and um yeah my dad my dad's amazing like he just super talented and uh i really look up to him but like i said when i think one of the probably the best moments one of the best moments of my life is he had been doing those shows those theater shows and i watched him my whole life as i was a kid growing up and i was probably four years into stand-up and he said would you like to do it with me and i was like i don't know like i don't know if i'm worthy of that but he said, no, no, you do 45 minutes and then intermission, and then I'll do 45 minutes. And instead of calling it the Jersey guy, which is it always was, he goes, we'll call it like Jersey guy and son. Like it's one of those hardware stores, you know? And we, we've done it a couple of times now and it's just been so exciting and cool. And yeah, it's just really special. I think your dad, and maybe now as a dad, you can see this. He could see that it was in the DNA with you. Like when you go back yeah. to... Go, well, just write it. You got a couple days to deliver this yeah. uh, performance. And, and you're like, I don't know if I can do this, but he knew you could do it. And I think yeah. maybe like he saw that my boy's going to be all right. He can handle this. I think that's what it is. And it's also, someone said this to me recently. They were like, you know, your job as a parent is not to teach your kid everything or be like in their lives so much like a helicopter. You know, you know, those helicopter parents who obsess over every little thing. They said your job is to be a shepherd. Basically, like you see a direction your kid could go in and you just kind of move them along and you bump them along. And so, like I said, my dad wasn't like an overpraiser. He wasn't, you know, so effusive with praise all the time and not the most emotional person. But little parts of my life, he was just like, oh, you know what? I think you'd be pretty good at that. You should try that. And he would just encourage me, like, give that a shot. And that's been a tremendous gift to have. And it makes me think as a parent, like that that's what I want to do with my son. Like my son's very musical. He wants, he's six years old. He wants to be in theater. He wants to, he loves acting already. And so I just want to kind of push him like, Oh, here's a theater camp. Like go do that for a summer and do these little things that just kind of move him along towards the thing, you know? And I think that's, yeah, that was a true gift that I had got from my dad. My dad did such a good job growing up of just kind of, uh, I think setting the tone of what matters in life. And I think all those things really show themselves years later. Like um, if you ask any comedian why they do stand up, no one has ever said the money. 
because I've been doing this now for eight years. And for the first four or five, you're a failing business in the sense that like you go to a show five hours away for 20 minutes for 50 bucks, which you spent on gas on the way there. And then you come home and you like, you've lost money. And if, and if you explain that to any rational person, they're like, that sounds like insane. Like what is wrong with you? But you just love it so much. And you know that it's, it's progressing and you know that each time is an opportunity to get better. And eventually all of a sudden these opportunities open up and it all seems like it happened easily, but it, it doesn't. And it really, if the goal isn't money, the goal is just to get better and funnier, you'll succeed. And if the goal is to get on a sitcom or a show or whatever it is, which is so difficult nowadays, you're going to fail. Um, so for me, I'm very lucky. I have a wife that is super supportive. She's like, go do it. You know, go take that gig. It it makes it that, that much more exciting and because you know you're doing it for the love of it, not for the paycheck. Because trust me, like I said, for the first five years, it is the most insane business to explain to someone. There's so many reasons to get out of it or not even get involved. Do you, um, some of those experiences early on where you'd, uh, like you said, drive an hour or two or, or longer away and play to a small crowd and not really make much money, but you, you get back home and you thought, man, that's really cool that I got to meet that guy or I made yes. that, I've now made a new connection or, yeah. hey, I would have rather played in front of several hundred people, but those 12 people that were there, they looked like they were having a good time. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories with stand up. I was probably three years into stand up. I was staying with my wife's family uh, in Connecticut. And so I got a call from this, this booker who I really wanted to get in with because he, he owned a lot of different clubs and things like that. And he said, can you host a show tonight in Atlantic city, New Jersey? I look at the GPS. It's five hours away that night opening. So you're hosting, hosting, is hard because people think you just work there like you sweep up and then you go up on stage and you know they think you're like the man the bar manager and they give you a mic to start the show so it's not a, a great position to be in so i'm five hours away and i said yes and my wife's like really you're gonna go five hours to, to host i'm like yeah i'm gonna go do it i went drove five hours had a really great set and the next weekend the manager said can you come host in atlantic city so at this point, I was in New York City. I got on a Greyhound bus. I sat on the bus for hours in traffic, did the show, came back middle of the night. Next weekend, do you want to come back to Atlantic City? Sure. I kept saying yes. Probably the fifth weekend in a row. He said, hey, the, the host just backed out. Could you be here in 10 minutes? And I said, no, I'm, I, I'm in New York City. He goes, wait a minute. You don't live in Atlantic City? And I go, no, I've, I've been driving you know, crazy. He's like, you keep saying yes. And I was like, yeah, this is a good opportunity. And ever since then, he has been, this is guy, his name is Emilio Savone. He owns New York Comedy Club. He owns Stanford Comedy Club. He owns Pinch Records, which signed me. He knew right there, he's like, oh, this is someone who loves this so much. They're willing to just drop everything and do it. And so most people would have said, I'm not driving five hours to do 15 minutes on stage for however much money. But because I did that, he saw something. He saw how like, dedicated I was. Although now when he tells the story, he'll say something like, oh, I love Dan. He's always so available. <laughs> Some people look at the short-term discomfort, inconvenience, expense, pain, and uh, however you want to yeah. package it and say, nah, I'm, I'm not going to make that drive. Let me, let me wait for the next offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so easy to say no to that. It sounds insane. And I think the best part of it is I could say like stand up and you can relate it to a lot of things, right? A lot of different things where I needed to learn how to perform in front of an audience like that. And I could say that with so many shows that I took that I probably shouldn't have taken on paper, but like, no, I got to go do a show at a firehouse in front of a bunch of alpha firemen, or I have to do a show at this, this Italian place. It's only Italians or uh, a PTA meeting that they bring a comedian for some reason. And you, none of it sounds glamorous, but you learn how to adapt to those situations and get better. So that when you're in front of a big audience, you almost feel like you're not phased by it as much. 
because you've gone through so much, like you've gone through all the hell gigs. And if you look at the stand-up comedians that really make it, the ones that you know their names, usually it happens like in their 40s, right? It happens when they're a little bit older because they've gotten to a point where they've been through so much with stand-up that they're like, what, what can you do to me at this point? You know, I, I'm not going to be nervous about this situation. I've gone through 10 situations like this. And so you need to go through hell gigs, mm-hmm. which, by the way, become the funniest stories after. Uh, but you need to go through those to then actually, you know, have the skin, the tough skin to make it. How did you respond when you were younger and you would get up there and you're like, I know these jokes are good. I mean, they're funny to me. That's what um, Daniel Eaches my guest last week was saying, he's like, if, if you believe that the material is funny to you, for most people, it should be funny. But how did you respond when you'd go up and not get any laughs after a series of bits and you're just standing up there and the room is pretty quiet and you're thinking, what is happening? And um, yeah, did you struggle in any of those moments or did that did it happen much? Maybe your stuff is, I think it's great. So I, I can't imagine it falling flat, but were there some nights, some crowds and you're like, I just can't do anything with this crowd. Oh yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, the numbers game gets better after a while, you know, you'll have uh, 20 good shows and then one show that for whatever reason misfires. There's a lot of elements in stand up that people don't really fully realize. Like if you're in a room with high ceilings and they can't hear it that well, or if it's a certain audience that just doesn't connect with you. But yeah, I remember the first time uh, I didn't get last, which was I did three shows, but each time I brought all my friends to those shows. So it seemed like to me, like, where's my HBO special? Like, I got this, like everyone's laughing. (laughs) And then the fourth show was probably eight people in the audience. It was a small audience at the comic strip in New York City. My wife's parents came to see me for the first time. It was a small room. And I did my first joke expecting laughs and nothing and went to the next one, nothing. And I start stuttering and my face turns red and I started getting, uh, you know, clammy hands and I'm making things up and just trying and it's getting worse <laughs> and worse and worse. And uh, I got off stage and this comedian was like, so that wasn't good. And I'm like, no, oh, that was horrible. And he goes, do you still want to do it? And I said, yeah, of course. And he's like, okay, you're a comedian. He goes, if you can go through that, most people will be like, I'd love to be a comedian because you go up there and get all these laughs. But the real question is, can you deal with embarrassment and shame of just not connecting and wake up the next day and want to keep going? But I think what was even worse about that moment was my in-laws came, as I mentioned, my wife's parents were there. First time they saw me, I completely bombed. (laughs) We then had to drive to Connecticut two hours after that gig. And we all sat in the car in silence because like, what do you say? Your mother-in-law is like, uh, honey, yeah. you, you sure you made a good choice here with Dan? <laughs> yeah. And I had just gotten married and I saw my father-in-law. He's an old school Italian guy. And he's like looking in the rear view mirror and he's like, just keep staring at me. Like, really? Wait, what are you going to do to my daughter? Is this, this is what you're going to do? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But I think as you get more into it, like I even had a show last night where I was I was opening the show and they weren't kind of ready yet. They weren't warmed up yet. And I just stopped for a second and made fun of myself. I'm like, oh, man, I really thought that last one would get applause. I'm like, you you clap, but one clap is so much worse than a bunch of claps. It's almost I'd rather not have that one clap because that just feels like, you know, um, and then they started laughing about how I was making fun of myself and they got them back and then I was fine. So I think it's, you get better at being honest and acknowledging, acknowledging the moment when it's not going well. And also um, it's part of the gig. Like you're gonna try new jokes and in your head, that joke is gonna kill. You're driving there you're like, this is gonna get, they're gonna go crazy. And then it's nothing. Uh, and you have to dig yourself out. And that's, that becomes the fun. Like, can I get out of this if it's not working well? Can you describe the feeling of having an audience in the palm of your hand and it's just electric and everything is firing? It is. It's equal parts joy and relief because I think about my shows all day. Like I'm headlining tonight in Derby, Connecticut, and it's on my mind all day. I'll be eating and thinking about the jokes and I'll be driving and thinking about the jokes. And then 
I start going, all right, I think it's going to go well. And then I go, oh, that joke might not go well. And you're thinking, you're overthinking. Like if you've ever overthought something and then you get to that moment, it starts going well. You see me the happiest I've been all day on stage if it's working because I've thought of every worst case scenario and it starts working. And then you just start feeling free. You're like, I got this. I got it. Yeah. And you get into the zone. It's almost like a, I, I've heard I've heard surfers describe it when you get into the zone, when you catch the perfect wave. It's that feeling of like you actually for a moment, you're like, I can't miss, you know, everything I'm saying is going to work. And it really is. You're one with the crowd. They get you. They get your sense of humor and you're connected in that moment. And it really is just, it's the thing, it's the dragon you chase, you know, it's that like, it's that high. So once you've had moments like that, where you really kill, you spend so much time wanting to get back to that moment, right? That becomes the drug. So when it happens, you're just so relieved, but you're also like, it's almost like you're not there. You're, you're so present. And I think all of us, we get distracted so much. I'm a very distracted person. And in that moment, I'm not distracted by anything. I'm, I'm locked in. And how many moments in a day do we get that? How many moments do any of us get those like true moments of being present? We talk about it all the time, right? Got to be present in the moment. But when you're killing, everyone's laughing, everything's working. It's that moment of being like, I'm very present. And also from the egotistical standpoint, it's that feeling of a middle child, which you might relate to, Dan. It's like, oh, they get me. Right. You know, they hear me, they get me, they get who I am. What a feeling to have your existence validated in that moment because they're laughing at your life. So therefore you feel like, oh, like they hear me, they get me like this is, you know, I'm, I'm connected with them. And so, yeah, it's such a good feeling, especially if you're, you're killing with new stuff, with stuff that you just wrote, because there's that excitement of like what this joke could be. As I, as I keep working on it and getting it better and better. Now, with this career, you're not taking the typical vacation that someone working an office job or another profession might be taking in a few months. How do you slow it down? Do you ever have a, a stretch of a few days where you're like, I'm not going to do anything comedy related. I'm just going to lay on a beach or I'm just going to go skiing. Oh, Dan, <laughs> I have tried. I have tried so many times. Like after I did my album, I, I had this thing in my head of like, ah, I'm just going to relax for a month. It's just going to be, <laughs> it's going to be great. Gonna sit on the beach and just chill. I think it was three days and I was like, oh, I got to write new jokes. Now my album's done. Like I have nothing now. I've, I've recorded everything. I need to, I need to slow it down. Um, or, you know, I need to slow it down. But then the other voice is like, no, you got to keep going, keep writing. So I guess the answer is, I'll tell you where my relaxation comes from. It's after I've done a show, after it's gone well, I come home and I'm like, maybe my, my wife and kid are sleeping and I'll like eat something that I shouldn't eat and watch a movie and go like, oh, I did it. And there's that like, there's that. It's momentary after I've done something I'm proud of where I can really feel relaxed. But extended relaxation, I, I have a lot of trouble with it. Like if you, it's also when relaxation is not your decision. Do you know what I mean? Like summertime, right. I struggle with the summer because it's like, you're supposed to be outside. You're supposed to be relaxed. It feels like too much pressure. <laughs> like when you go on a beach vacation, it's like, all right, hurry up and go, be relaxed, go. And <laughs> yeah. that's where my mind starts racing the most, you know? So I like stealing moments of, of relaxation, but to take a month off, uh, I can't imagine it. Uh, but I also know my mind would be racing with ideas. So that never stops. I don't know. Are you able to shut it down? Are you able to do that? Not for long stretches. You know, speaking of like a week vacation, I'm really good with a long weekend type deal or maybe mm -hmm. even a four-day thing. Or like you're saying, if I just get half a day or, or an open evening to just watch a ball game, yeah. flip around, f f watch some documentary. That's enough. That's enough. Because yes. when the next day starts, I'm back to uh, let's not lose any momentum here or whatever I'm working on. Yeah, I can totally tell that you're like that. I mean, you're doing a podcast in your car right now. Like, you could be <laughs> you could be on a lunch break. You know what I mean? You could right? just be relaxing for a moment. Like there's that 
there's that drive. You know, someone asked me once, it was a friend of mine, and he wasn't wrong. We were just different in how we looked at things. He goes, why do you do this? Like, why do you always do a million things? Like you're working, you have a family, you have a job, like you have a stand up and why? And I said, I know it sounds morbid, but you know, we're going to die. So I want to go do the things that I want to do. And I, I don't want to have any regrets. And he was like, well, if we're going to die, why not just relax? What's the point? And he wasn't wrong. It, it's just, a, there's people that look at that. It's all the same thing. It's all that phrase. Yeah. Is we're going to die. So I might as well go out and do all the things I want to do. Or so who cares? Let's just relax and uh, have a drink and take it easy. No one's wrong. I just think that there's people that are built differently. I wouldn't wish this plight on other people, like always needing to create and go and, and take on a new challenge. It's, it's exhausting, but it's also, I don't know other, any other way. And I can't just sit and have a drink unless I feel like I earned it. That's just how I've always felt. Yeah. I think that my kids have helped me, like we were saying earlier, where you have to, you got to watch the kids. I always thought that was pretty funny. Oh, I got to watch my kids this weekend. Well, yeah, aren't you one of their parents? But, uh, you know, that whole day where you've got to suspend everything and just be a dad and watch PJ masks with them or sit yes. on the floor and do Legos. It's like, oh my gosh, I got a million things run through my head, but I just have to do Legos right now for 30 minutes. And I'm glad that my kids force me into those moments where you just got to push it aside. You got to do story yes. uh, story time. I really do. I like that. I think it's important for children to hear their parents speaking to them or reading to them. And so I really get into stuff like that. Now, if I just have to sit and be a captive observer to <laughs> blaze in the monster machines for four episodes, that that's almost torture. But well, there's, some there's, some of those shows are better than borderline, others. <laughs> it's borderline torture. No, I I'll tell you, like when I when my son was three, I remember I had been on the road for three nights, and I came in, and maybe he didn't mean it this way, but it sounded <laughs> passive aggressive from a three year old. He goes, "Hey, Dad, how you been?" How you been? <laughs> and it like it wasn't like how are you? How you been? Good to see you. I was like, oh. And so, I mean, there's been a lot of moments like that where the 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 deal I make with myself is, you know, I, I I'm gone sometimes doing stand up, but my the deal I make with myself is when I'm home, I'm home. Like when I'm home, my phone is in the other room. I'm with my kid from you know morning noon night if i don't have a show that night i'm doing bedtime i'm doing dinner i'm doing everything i'm never going to be like the dad that's in the other room with the whiskey just like by themselves all like <laughs> dark on the chair like when i'm home i'm there and so because i never want to uh yeah i never want him to feel that that like that i'm not around so i i really and maybe it's like uh justifying or maybe it's like overcompensating but like when i'm home I'm all there. And and you're right. Like it does help you be more present. It does help you be like, no, put away all the ambition, put away all the the BS and and build these Legos. Yeah. You know, and and then you have these little moments. And you know, like the other day, my son had never seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Classic. And we're watching, yeah, we're watching something. And I'm like, you've never seen this. I've never shown this to you. So we decided we're gonna put it on. I showed him the trailer. I showed him a couple of things and he goes, Oh, let's, let's dress up as them. So he was Willy Wonka and I was grandpa Joe, you know, and we got dressed and dressed up and then watched the movie together. And it was like this magical moment. We could like talk about it and hang out. And uh, it's things like that, that you go like, all right, this is, this is actually what matters. All yeah. the other ego stuff is ego stuff. Yeah. I remember being a kid and I knew how busy my dad was. I mean, if you, if, one of your parents is pretty busy. Rest assured, your kids know after a certain age that, hey, he's got a lot moving and shaking here. And when you slow all that down and give them your undivided attention, I think there's nothing better for that child. And I see it with my kids because there's, I do a lot of, hang on a second. Uh, give me 30 minutes. I'll be there pretty soon. It's a lot of, hey, hang on. And then when I finally get there, I'm, I'm working on that. But they're thrilled. Yes. No, I feel the same way. And, and I did that a lot. I think where I mentioned the pandemic before when we were in a one bedroom, we were both working. He just wanted to play. And I was like, I need five minutes. I need 10 minutes. And I started to see him not trust that and not believe me. And that was what was hard. It was that I needed to be like, no, no, I need to like 
say this and actually follow through. Yeah, and then realize like what what actually matters. It's like his attention is much more important than that dumb email I have, or you know what I mean, or that other thing I need to do. I mean, so much comedy comes out of those moments too. It's like just to just to be with him and uh, and kind of like see the life see life through his eyes is so much fun. Yeah, I'll and I'll remind everybody again, but check out if you've been listening to this episode and you love it. Put it on pause real quick. Move over to Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get, you get your music and comedy, and download Stand Up Dad. This thing is, if, if you're a dad or if you're about to be a dad, by the way, Dan, I love I love the track on the expectant fathers and how useless we are. And oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys got to listen to that, but I think that, You'll get a lot out of it. This is a hilarious album. It's easy to say that. Of course, I'm going to have a comic on the podcast. I'm going to say his stuff's hilarious. Trust me on this. You're going to sink right in, right out the gate. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Can, can I ask you a Dan question? Absolutely. Is there a nickname with Dan that you don't like? Well, I've heard most of them. So uh, Dan the man, there was the Dan man that was given to me for a short time when I was little. You didn't like those? Those are fine. I think I'm pretty much good with all of them. The name Dan, I think, for me, it's distinguished, but it can also, it's like you can play it in different directions. You can be, yeah, I got a classic name like Steve or Joe or Don or Ron. By the way, I love all the uh, modern names that you run through on the album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kid names that <laughs> get a little flowery. But, um, but, yeah. it, but, but Dan is also kind of a, you can caricature that name. And I like having fun with it. It sounds yeah. like it could be silly. It sounds like there's an ex yeah. there's ex-boyfriend's named Dan. There's um <laughs> whoever. So like I like having a name that's not so rigid. It sounds it just sounds like a yeah. I don't know how do you feel about being a Dan? I think it's a, it's a I cool club a to be in. <laughs> I love being a Dan. I think it's great. I think I was Daniel only when my parents were mad. So it's just from the other room. It was like, wake up, Dan, wake up, Dan, Daniel, you know? <laughs> so I like that. Um, the one that I have that I don't like is Danny. For some reason, I don't know why, it feels condescending a little bit. Like, hey, Danny, how are you? Like, and I had a I had a soccer coach when I was a kid, like a British soccer coach. He was like, Danny, get to the ball first, Danny. And it, <laughs> for some reason, to this day, when someone says Danny, I go, like I cringe. I don't know. That's the only variation that I don't, for some reason, I don't like, I don't know, do people call you Danny? I've never gotten it consistently, and that one didn't really bother me. I've had girlfriends, more than a few, that prefer Daniel. So they said, well, I'm, everyone's going to call you Dan, I'm going to oh. call you Daniel. Like, okay, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, because it feels like it feels like the official name, you know what I mean? Like, they feel very connected, so it's like the official, I'm going to call you the official name. Hello, Daniel. I but think, it feels very formal. Yeah, I think that they, in those cases, they felt like Dan seemed like what the guys call me, and they're like, well... I'm I'm your girlfriend, so I'm gonna call you Daniel, your given name. Right, right. <laughs> and then yeah, I know I like it. I like it. Uh, and then some people, some older folks, I remember a few occasions where they refused to call me Dan. They wanted to call me by the biblical Daniel. That has happened, right. not very many times. And they'll say they'll say biblical Daniel, like they'll <laughs> actually say it that way. Or they yeah, just they'll just a... say Daniel, whether that whether I introduce myself, I introduce myself as Dan. And then from there, then on, they'll just say Daniel. <laughs> yeah, it might be a respect thing. I always thought it was weird that the, the, the biblical story, like we're we're associated with the lion's den. It's it was always just a weird. I'm like that's a, that's a that was a strange story to grow up with uh, as a Daniel. But you know, you know, Dan is one of the tribes, one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Yeah, we're all over the place. We're we're taking over as this podcast is an indication <laughs> of. We are we are everywhere. <laughs> uh, Dan, would you recommend? If someone's got the itch and they've got some material and they're, say, 22 years old and they've never gotten on stage yeah. before and they're like, they're thinking, man, I don't know if I got it. I don't know if I could do this, but I like my jokes. I like my stuff. Would you encourage just anybody to give this a shot? Yes. You have to be willing to write and you have to be willing to edit. I think that's the, the common denominator of people that I think uh, really continue with this. I mentioned it before. One, you have to have a high threshold for pain. You're going to fail 
the best comedians fail constantly. You have to be loving the writing process. We all love getting a laugh, but where it really exists in comedy is in writing new jokes, coming up with fresh material, editing when a joke doesn't work, and being self-aware enough to say, hey, that's not working. What can I do to make that better? And if you don't have that, that editing uh, mind where you go, I got to get that better, I got to get that better, it's going to be tough for you. It's hard to be self-aware and say, that's not working or that didn't go well. It's easy for us to go, that was fine. It was fine. Mm -hmm. It was good. You have to own it and look in the mirror and say, that joke isn't working. Um, so I encourage everyone to, who really has that drive to do it. Comedy is the one thing, I feel like it's one of the only professions where someone will come up to me and say, yeah, I could do that. I just don't have the time. It seems like it's, uh, if you're doing it well, it seems like you're just making it up or it's effortless, right? So I understand how people feel about that. But I would say, I think Jerry Seinfeld said it. He said, all you have to do is do it once and then you're a comedian. So I think the biggest fear is like, I could never, I could never, you hear that all the time, but just do it once and you'll know right away whether you love it or not. Because some people go up there the first time they go, I am never doing this again. That was pure torture. I don't know how people do this. And then people like me, the first time I did it, I was like, oh, damn it. This is going to be the rest of my life. <laughs> have, have you seen any comics that they've got great stuff, but all the nonverbal stuff, all the moving around the stage and the connecting and the animation yeah. that they need to have, they just don't have all that extra stuff, but they've got good material. Do you ever see comics yeah. hit a snag there because they... They're not animated when they need to be. I think so. I think you're in sales. Uh, comedy is also a sales job, right? You're selling the joke and you're selling the emotion behind it. And so I do think there's great writers who have great material, but they don't know how to really connect on a human level with the audience. And that sometimes comes with time. I think in the beginning, I was just getting the jokes out and then slowly learned that part of the job is to um, emote, it's to express the emotion behind the joke so that people can connect with the emotion. So if I'm talking about insomnia, which I talk about on the album, I, I have battled insomnia. And so I'm putting myself back in that moment of when I had it and when it was at its worst so that I can really bring out the honesty behind it. So I think you have to remember where you were when you wrote it and how you were feeling and try to channel that and connect back with it. So yeah, I have seen stand-ups are a great joke, but the audience doesn't feel uh, connected or like feel the emotion behind it, you know? And some people don't even need that. Like some people, the jokes are so good that it doesn't even matter, but you do need to your point about the facial expressions and you, didn't, you do need to find your own timing because comedy is timing, right? So everyone has a different comedic timing. And so it is, I learned I would go too fast. I would go, ba 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 Go to the next one, go to the next one, because I just want to like kill. And sometimes in New York City, you only got five minutes. So it's like, let me jam it all and go. And a couple of times I just paused and sat and the laughs got bigger and bigger because it built a little bit and people could think about what I was saying. Because we forget sometimes people have to hear it and think and they're going through their own dialogue in their head as you're up there. So that was a great moment to go like, oh, like my timing can be a little slower sometimes. Like if I know it's going to get a laugh or I hope it does, or it usually does, I'll just sit. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to just sit in silence for a second, but it pays off even more. And I think that's where you get better and better when you, when you're not afraid to let something be quiet before you bring up the big, the big line or, or hit the big punch. You're letting the, letting the audience catch their breath take you in, take all of, yeah. you know, your delivery and everything and get comfortable with you. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. And it's also building tension. Like I have a joke on the album. You mentioned that joke about the soon to be dads being useless. And we're at a dad boot camp class that my wife signed me up for, which was real. And the teacher asked me to go first. Like we're going around talking about what we're afraid of. And I thought we were just sharing 
And so I said, I'm afraid I'm not going to do as much stand up when I have a kid. I won't be able to be on the road and my dreams will change. And all about like you. <laughs> yeah, all about me and my ego. And then the next guy <laughs> went and he said, uh, I'm mostly scared of my baby choking on food. Like he's afraid of what's going to happen. Like how I take care of a kid. And here I am worried about my career, my, my stupid little comedy career. But what I love about that joke is that when I give my answer, it's quiet because I'm giving a very sincere, ah, like I have a kid. I want to be able to pursue my passion and what's going to happen to my life. And it's quiet in the room. But then when the next guy goes and says, I'm afraid of my baby choking on food, then you get the big laugh. But it, it took me a while to have the guts to sit in that silence, you know, and trust in that silence. Because in the beginning, you're so afraid of anything silent because you think it's not, it's not going well. So it's that kind of thing you learn over time that like actually the silence can help you, can help you get that bigger laugh because you created a real moment, you've built tension and then the punchline releases the tension and gives the audience an opportunity to, to realize what you were doing. Right. For our listeners, where are you going to be the next few weeks into December? Do you have any dates lined up if people are on the East Coast and want to want to check you out? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to be all over Connecticut. I'm going to be all over uh, New York City. And then my tour really starts. It started in Denver, but we're continuing it. Uh, it's, I'm going to be in Buffalo, New York. I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. That's right. Um, my wife's from be- Buffalo. Buffalo, I love, I love doing stand up in Buffalo. I love it. Um, I went in there thinking, oh, it's all Bills fans, and you just think of like people jumping through tables and stuff. And they're the <laughs> coolest, nicest people, and they're happy you're there, and they love being from Buffalo. Yeah, you know, I grew up in New Jersey where there's not really Jersey pride. We make fun of ourselves more than anyone else makes fun of Jersey. And trust me, people make fun of Jersey, and you probably know that. Um, <laughs> But we we're self-deprecating. Whereas in Buffalo, there's a pride. We're from here. We're Bills fans. We we love it. So there's a there's just a good salt of the earth people. Like I love doing stand up there. Yeah. So I'll be in Buffalo, and then I'm actually in November. I'm also later this month. I'll be in San Francisco. So kind of all over the place. But uh, I have a website, DanAltano.com, where I'll be putting up all my tour dates soon. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out and, and definitely come see me. Great. Well, there's some Dan time listeners in most of those spots you mentioned. So folks, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're looking for a a good date night, or if you just want to run out there solo, do you see a lot of people in your, in your audience? I mean, everybody assumes it's just couples and couples and just tables of, do you ever see just a dude sitting there just having a ball? All the time, (laughs) uh, all the time. And sometimes they're having a ball and sometimes it's that thing of like, I need this. (laughs) <laughs> something went wrong and they're like, I'm going out on my own. I got to go get some laughs. So there's, there's, you can see it in their eyes, you know? Um, but no, I think that's like, I admire that so much. I admire anyone. I like, I, I did that a lot in New York city where I would just go to a diner by myself. Yeah. Um, I'd go to a movie by myself or even go to a comedy show by myself. And I think there's a, there's something nice about that because it, it takes a lot to be like, oh, this might be embarrassing or I'm by myself. Like, what does that look like? But when I see people like that, I'm like, either they're going through something and they need these laughs. So I respect that. Or they're just like really confident in themselves and they they want to go and have a good time. Or the third one, which is that no one can tolerate them or deal with them. And so they have to be alone. But yeah. there's less of those, I think. I did that a lot when I was still single before I met my wife and I was out of a relationship, maybe. I had no problem going to lunch by myself going to watch a ball game by myself. Um, it's a skill. It's a skill. I think if people are afraid of that, but when you stop caring about like the people in the diner, they're like, what's with that guy? And you realize they're not thinking about you at all. Um, that's a really freeing moment. That's right. Dan, yeah. I could talk to you for another hour. I just have enjoyed this entire conversation and really excited for you out there and for your album. And we didn't touch on a few things like Dinner's Ready Live. Do you want to talk about anything or plug anything that uh, we didn't mention here? Well, yeah, Dinner's Ready Live, uh, it came out of the pandemic where I started doing a cooking show at home. And while things would simmer or bake, I would bring on comedians. So we have like an eight-minute simmer. I bring on a comedian to do eight minutes of material. And then we started doing that live. We started doing 
a show where we would eat dinner and then do the show afterwards. Um, and I will be putting on an actual um, a show where it's going to be sketch comedy. So it's while I'm cooking, I'm going to be cooking and then I'll be cutting away to sketches like SNL style sketches. Um, it's going to be called Dinner's Ready Live again. And it's going to be fake live. So we will, you know, record it and pretend that it's live. And uh, it, yeah, it's, I'm really excited about it. It's something I've, I've been working on really hard on for a while. So yeah, Dinner's Ready Live. Check it out. Okay, Dan, any uh, music that you're jamming to right now? Anybody you want to promote or talk about? I love uh, Noah Kahan. Nice. Uh, he's got an album called Stick Season that uh, that a good friend of mine uh, told me about, and it's fantastic. It's kind of an indie indie folk kind of rock, um, but a good a good like long drive album. You know, it hits you in the feels a little bit. And uh, it's it's just well written, and uh, yeah, Noah Kahan Stick Season is a great album that I've been uh, I've been loving lately. All right, well, couple silly questions here, and we'll wrap up. Are you a Skittles or M and M's guy, or are you taking a pass on both of those? You know, I'm gonna go M and M's. I do love Skittles. Um, for some reason, as I get older, I've been enjoying chocolate more, and uh, I, I have to be gluten free now, which is terrible. As an Italian, that's horrible. Yeah, but um, I just have to do it. And M and M's are gluten free, so I can eat them all day and pretend that I'm healthy. Nice. What is the one children's show that maybe just because you've had to watch it so many times that you're like, this isn't so bad. The rest yeah. of them are just annoying as they can be, but this one's all right. There's a show on Amazon Prime called Wild Kratts. And there's these two nature guys and they turn into cartoons and they like have the powers of animals. And I love it. And my, my wife loves it. My son loves it. We went to see it live. And instead of them turning from humans into cartoons, they were cartoons on the screen. And all of a sudden the, the screen opens and they came out. And maybe, maybe it's because I had like two martinis, but I was actually like really excited. <laughs> And I like turn to my wife, I'm like, they reversed it. Usually they turn into the cartoons. And now the cartoons, <laughs> she was like, all right, settle down. Uh, so yeah, Wild Kratts, it's a great show. It's like, I actually learned stuff about animals. That one's good. Can I tell you the one I can't stand that I, I can't stand? Please. Blippi. I'm right there with you. I'm sorry, you Blippi. Blippi. If, if Blippi's listening or the guy who plays him. Or if any of you guys love Blippy, I'm sorry, but I can't handle Blippi. it. Blippy, Blippy, what are you doing, Blippy? First of all, he's not teaching us anything. There's, it's not he doesn't understand the different levels of like a two year old versus a six year old, and he's just running around with his suspenders. And all I can think about when I watch is how much money he's making, you know. And he yeah. knows it, you know. And it's just that like I just uh, I'm not into him. But luckily, my son's like he's six now. He's starting to like not be in a blippy and he's into other things and that that was a big moment where he's just like i don't really like blippy i'm like oh thank great. you <laughs> there's a character he's i don't know if he's trying to be anti-blippy but danny go have you heard of or seen danny go i uh, never heard of it but i love the phrase anti-blippy <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's really good i've i'd love to have him on the show as well uh, you can find all his stuff on youtube it's a lot of dancing it's he encourages kids to just get up and move with them, you know? So you'd like, you'd be watching it on TV and just shaking and moving and doing yeah. jumping jacks. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Um, Dan, how many times a week do you have to apologize to your wife for something big or small and just say, honey, look, you're right. I'm wrong. Let's, um, let's move um, along here. <laughs> every day daily <laughs> me every too day. i think I'm, me too yeah every day and um i've gotten better at apologizing because i remember when i first got married i called my dad and he said how's it going i'm like ah we bicker all the time you know because i will because we both want to be right and he's like you're a moron and i'm like why he's like be wrong he goes you know how quickly you can go back to watching the hockey game when you're wrong be, he said, Just wrong. be wrong who cares and I was like, you're right. Because if you're right and you prove that you're right, nobody wins. Because you're right. She's mad about that. She doesn't want to be wrong. So if I'm just like, 
She'll be like, you know, you didn't clean that up. I'm like, you're right. Sorry. I'll take care of it. She's happy because I heard her. Like I actually heard what she was saying. And I'm happy because I'm watching the game within 10 minutes. Um, so yeah, so I just, uh, sometimes I'll just apologize and I don't even know what I did yet. You know, it's just to get ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, it's going in the bank. I got a couple apologies in. Okay, Dan, I got, I could keep going here, but you got a show tonight and um, I appreciate you making some time for Dan time. And I'd love to have yeah. you back. Oh, I'd love to be back. I love the podcast. This is a great idea. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and just, uh, you know, the middle child of, of brothers and we're both Dan and we're both, you know, like holding microphones for our jobs. Like, let's do it. We're, we're pals, man. We're, we're, we're pals for life here. It was meant to be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So danaltano.com, pull up some clips on YouTube, but for sure go to your favorite streaming platform and download Stand Up Dad. You're gonna love it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to the album. I really appreciate it. You're, you're, uh, you're great. I really appreciate it. I'm going right back to it after we wrap up this conversation. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's it for this episode of Dan Time. And remember, if you need a laugh, quit taking things so seriously. I know that's easier said than done. But um, times are still tough for a lot of you people. So if you're having a hard time, check into it and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a break here and put on this album and give yourself a good belly laugh. We will see you guys next week. Go out there and make a difference in somebody's life. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Hey, if you love that episode, Tell a friend about it. I think every show probably asks you to leave a review, leave a rating, and I appreciate it if you do. But if nothing else, just talk about Dan Time. It really helps the visibility of the program. You can find Dan Time on all the social media pages, and you can also reach me at dantimepod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.